1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a segment about why we talk about resting on your laurels, and a segment about the origin of the word smarmy. Highly accomplished people are often praised for their deeds. When you use the phrase to rest on your laurels to describe a person's character, though… It implies that the person is slacking off, relying on their good reputation or achievements as an excuse to not put in the effort at their current task. What about resting on laurels implies this type of laziness? Let's start by defining what a laurel is. Laurel is a type of tree, laurus nobilis, whose leaves are also known as sweet bay. Yes, the same as those bay leaves you use for cooking. Besides their culinary or ornamental uses, the idea of a crown of laurels stems from the Greek myth of Daphne and Apollo, ruler of the sun and god of music. When Apollo wanted to woo the nymph Daphne, she turned into a laurel tree instead of returning his affections. Though he was rejected, Apollo decided to don a crown of laurel leaves in her honor. In ancient Greek tradition, these crowns were gifted to athletic champions as seen as symbols of status and victory. This connotation of glory lives on in the word laureate, first coined in the late 14th century, meaning crowned with laurels. The phrase laureate poet then pops up in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales as part of the Knight's Tale. The modern translation of this reads, With Laurel crowned as conqueror, there he lived in joy and honor. The phrase switched to poet laureate when penned by Ben Johnson in the 16th century. In 1668, England established the position of poet laureate, and esteemed poet, literary critic, and playwright John Dryden was the first to hold this honor. Poet laureates still exist in the United Kingdom, and the honorees are bestowed a stipend and quote, a butt of sack—in other words, a barrel of sherry. The United States also has a poet laureate position, and that person is appointed annually by the Librarian of the United States Congress. Outside of poetry, Nobel Prize winners are also known as laureates. So a crown of laurels and being a laureate are marks of distinction, not associated with slacking off or riding on your reputation. The expression to rest on one's laurels evolved in the 18th century as part of an earned victory or a well-deserved retirement speech, that the honored person had accomplished so much they finally had earned a rest. Later, in the 19th century, this expression crossed over from laudatory to critical— In 1825, the review magazine The Literary Chronicle praised the work of Maria Edgeworth and ends in a jest. It read, We do not affect to wish she should repose on her laurels and rest satisfied. On the contrary, we believe that genius is inexhaustible. For Miss Edgeworth, there must be no rest on this side of the grave don't rest so soon, Miss Edgeworth, the reviewers seem to say, because your career isn't over yet. Odd that this phrase is rooted in a classic story honoring a woman, and then the meaning changed when a woman is told she can't rely on her past accomplishments. Today, to rest on one's laurels has a critical edge—that an accomplished person simply relied on their reputation instead of putting in the effort According to the Oxford English Dictionary, common phrases using laurels in this way include to reap or win one's laurels and to look to one's laurels, to beware of losing one's preeminence. There is a cautionary element to this idiom, warning that people who have risen high can also fall if they aren't diligent. Nevertheless, we can return to the glory days of laurels. Figuratively and literally, we should give ourselves a break now and then when we need one. And maybe the next time you celebrate an accomplishment, think of cooking a tasty lentil stew using a bay leaf as a tribute to its honorable history. That segment was written by Diana M. Foe, an independent scholar, playwright, and Hugo Award-nominated book editor. Learn more about her work and editorial services at dianamfoe.com. You like to watch
0: new stuff, right?
1: Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages. And you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com/grammar. That’s 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com/grammar today. This next segment about the word smarmy is written by Benya Goda. So when I say I, that means him. Smarmy is a useful word as anyone who has listened to an oleaginous colleague drone on in a business meeting can attest. But unlike most useful words, its origin can be traced to a particular person who invented it as a joke. The Oxford English Dictionary's principal definition for smarmy is ingratiating, obsequious, smug unctuous. And the first citation is from L. Brock, Deductions of Colonel Gore, published in 1924. It reads, Don't you be taken in by that smarmy swine. The word is widely used today, with more than 42,000 hits on Google News. A recent New York Times theater review says a Munich production of A Midsummer Night's Dream turned it into a Midsummer Nightmare with a smarmy, sadistic puck who gets his kicks by knocking Athenian lovers unconscious with his spells. Looking to antedate the OED, as I do, I found a 1905 use of the word in the Google Books database, a poem called The Widower by Edward Sidney Tiley, published in The Living Age. Tylee is going for an English West Country accent, sometimes referred to as Mummerset. Vain marnin, zur, the Volk do cry, and grip my hand with smarmy smiles. A middling warmish man be I, and that's enough for Jack and Giles. I show my carn and make my sale, and give good day and get the news. And then Tess come a cup of ale, for zartin, zur, you don't refuse. Moments after I proudly tweeted out my find, Jonathan Green, editor of Green's Dictionary of Slang, responded with a bit of skepticism. He wrote, Looking at other bits of the poem allowed by Google Books, I'm certain it's a positive sense and not the current one. All simple, rustic good fellowship, none of the implications of modern smarmy. On reflection, I took his point, although I couldn't find such a good fellowship meaning in any reference work or in any other text— The other recognized meaning of smarmy derives from the verb smarm, sometimes spelled smalm or smwom, defined by the OED as smear, bedaub, and first cited in the dictionary in an 1847 work, a dictionary of archaic and provincial words. The OED has a second definition of smarmy as smooth and sleek, with the first citation from a 1909 source a tall, slight, smarmy headed man. As that suggests, the smear meaning became associated with the stuff one smears on one's hair. A little quality time on Google Books gave me an even earlier date from a 1903 play by Henry V. Esmond when we were 21. It reads, You mustn't ruffle my hair, you know, because the soldier man's coming to lunch, and if everybody's hair isn't smarmy, he loses his appetite it makes sense that unctuous smarmy, with its sense of behavioral greasiness, would have emerged from the hair sense of the word. And a short time after our initial Twitter exchange, Jonathan Green posted a true antedate for the current meaning from a 1916 edition of an Australian newspaper, The Barrier Miner in New South Wales. It reads, I wonder what his game is. He doesn't look the sort she could make a friend of. Too smarmy for my taste. I kept looking and eventually came upon an even earlier use of modern smarmy, and as I said at the beginning, it was a joke. A London journal called The Academy ran literary competitions in each issue, much as New York Magazine and The Washington Post have done in later years. And here are the rules for competition number fourteen— Not necessarily with a view of enriching the language, but certainly in the interests of our readers, we ask this week for new words. Most families have a few pet words of homemade manufacturer, which often are far more expressive and picturesque than anything in Webster's Unabridged. To the competitor who supplies the best list of four original words with definitions attached, a check for a guinea will be sent." Using Google Books, I found an article about the results of the competition, including a list of some of the best responses, and the list included smarmy, which was described as saying treacly things which do not sound genuine. After I sent that out over Twitter, the language maven Ben Zimmer located the original article from the January 14, 1899 issue of the Academy, announcing the winner of the competition. It revealed that one B.R.L. of Brighton had come up with the idea that a word for saying trickly things which do not sound genuine should be smarmy. The internet is full of articles of notable neologisms such as witticism, coined by John Dryden, and serendipity, invented by Horace Walpole, but none of them includes smarmy, and the very fact that BRL's humorous definition in a literary contest should eventually have become widely adopted, even as other winners, including squeal, to feel the sensation produced by hearing a knife edge squeaked on a plate— scrungle—the feeling of hearing a slate pencil squeaked on a slate, and gluxy—an adjective denoting the quality that is not quite oily or creamy or glutinous but something of each—the fact that all these disappeared but that smarmy has become widely used, I find amazing, and I hope that doesn't sound smarmy. That segment was written by Ben Yagoda, author of How to Not Write Bad, About Town, The New Yorker, and the World It Made, and many other books. You can find out more about him at benyagoda.com and on Twitter. Finally, we collect our own interesting invented family words here and we call them Familect stories. Familect being a blend of the words family and dialect. And today I have two from Christine.
0: Hi Grandma Girl. Christina Arnold here, calling from beautiful Denver, Colorado. Our whole family sport loves your podcast. Even my 10-year-old son, Jackson. My daughter says I talk about you so much that she's making me a Grammar Girl costume for Halloween. How's that? I'm calling to tell you two stories from our The First story, this term entered our family when my daughter, Maddie, was three or four years old. To pass the time on road trips, our family has a history of working together to whip up tall tales. We each contribute to these silly stories by taking turns adding made-up details, characters, and actions. When Maddie was three or four years old, she started grasping abstract thinking and more complicated language skills so that she eagerly tried to take part in our story-making fun. But she got lost in the rapid evolution of the story. She started crying and screaming, stop! I'm confused!" Which is a combination of fun and confused. This word perfectly described your feelings of excitement, fun, and confusion. We continue to use this word to this day. It's perfect. Our second story comes from me. When I'm tired or post-migraine, I have a hard time finding the correct words, which is to the delight of my family who love to make fun of me. For example, I'll say that I want frosted flakes when I mean frosted mini leaves. Or I might say, did anyone do the dishwasher when I meant did anyone do the laundry? On one particularly long day, I was describing a wild happening of a friend, and I explained, this is ridiculous, which was a combination of crazy and ridiculous. In summary, sometimes we don't have immediate access to the perfect word to describe a very specific mood or emotion. In these instances, we just make up a word. fun is a combination of fun and confused. Crediculous is a combination of crazy and ridiculous. Feel free to use. And if you can tell us what type of mistakes that are, these are, that would really help us out. We suspect crediculous is a pormanteau. Not sure if we're saying that right. And suncused is an egg corn, but maybe it's a
1: pormanteau too. Keep up the great work, grammar girl. Thanks, Christine. I would call both of your words portmanteaus, and another name for them is blends because they blend the beginning of one word with the end of another. An egg-corn is when people replace the right word with a different word that sounds the same and that makes logical sense in its place. fun isn't a word with a similar meaning. To me, it just seems more like a blend of fun and confused. And in case you're curious, portmanteau is French for a type of suitcase that opens into two parts. Lewis Carroll gave portmanteau its newer linguistic meaning in his book Alice Through the Looking Glass. And thanks again for sharing your family's words. Also, people have dressed up like Grammar Girl in the past for Halloween, and I love to see the pictures, so if you really do it or if anyone else out there does it, please post your pictures on social media and tag me so I see it. And if you want to call and leave a voicemail with the story of a word or phrase your family and only your family uses, the number is 83 I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams, and that's all. Thanks for listening.